Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling themes and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. I'm Brittany. And this week, we'll be exploring the theme of ability in Lord of the Rings. And this week, we're recording in the same space. That's true. It's been nine months of not doing that. Reunited, (laughs) and it feels so nice, and not a violation of copyright law oh okay. <laughs> i was like why are you singing this song wrong <laughs> i'm pretty sure that's how my original song that i just made goes yeah Mm-hmm. totally but yes so we are we are in the same room again and so it'll be even more difficult for you to edit out all of the things that i say Will <laughs> <laughs> But for our conversation about Lord of the Rings, we're going to get started, as we always do, with a quote. So this quote comes from The Return of the King as Aragorn talks to Eowyn, asking her about what she fears. A cage. To stay behind bars until youth and old age accept them, and all chance of doing great deeds is gone beyond recall or desire. Yeah, so, I mean, way to be ageist, Eowyn. Yeah, Ellen, gosh. <laughs> but I think that this is a an interesting quote because when you think of ability and those who have what's represented as impressive ability in Lord of the Rings, it is almost always based off of battle and war and, and valor. And I think that one of Eowyn's really interesting struggles, which we talked a lot about in the gender uh, in Lord of the Rings episode, is that she is not given access to those avenues in the same way a man would be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think that it is problematic to have them valorized as the only way of achieving the kind of notoriety that she's striving for. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting uh, on the flip side, though, in a way. I mean, she's talking about valor, which is a very specific thing. Mm-hmm. But to actually have the abilities to be able to fight in combat better than maybe some of the other people Mm. and not be given the opportunity just because you're a woman when she's like, I want to defend these lands. I don't want to lose my home. I don't want everybody to die. I don't want our villages to get burned down. You know, I don't Mm. want these things either. And you're telling me I can't do it just because I'm a woman, which I imagine would be really frustrating as well. And I say I imagine because when it comes to combat and war, I would run the other direction. (laughs) Please don't make me go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and, you know, in in our discussion about ability and disability and and all these other kinds of things, this is, of course, you know, we're trying to be intersectional with this. And Mm -hmm. the idea that she's a woman is going to vastly impact the way that she navigates the world. Yeah. When, in the end, she's able to help save the day because she has a different ability, whether we say it is something biological Mm. with her being a woman. Again, these things aren't necessarily determined in the story or whether it's just she believes she could do it and she did it, Mm. whereas everyone else didn't. And they believed the story that no man could kill the Witch King. So, yeah, I don't know. But in an- in another way, I do kind of resonate with the quote because with my own limitations, yeah, I, I do worry about 
this idea of just kind of accepting more and more limitations that I'm, I may have mm. down the road because of how that has happened in, in the past, like the amount of hours I've been able to work basically out of college to the point I am at now has shrunk over the years and things like that. And so the idea of just ac- accepting it to the point where all ideas of you know great deeds or you know anything is just like beyond recall or desire Mm. is a scary thought Uh, we've talked about especially in other episodes how yeah i'm part slytherin and a part of why i say i'm part slytherin is i think as a 11 year old i would have been sorted into slytherin Mm. for sure but over time i've become more and more ravenclaw and i think part of that has also come Part of it's come from ideas that I've, you know, learned in in college and things like that that have been really compelling for me. But another part of it has been that I just don't have the ambition that I used to. I I used to have a lot of ambition, but because of being differently abled in certain ways, that ambition does not make sense anymore. Mm. And so losing that, I mean... at this point, I don't really view it as like losing a part of myself, but it still was, mm. right? And so I can understand that like wanting to do some great deeds or, you know, have ambition is just beyond recall or, or desire is, yeah, it is a scary thought. So I can, I can resonate with her on that. Do you, do you feel like the, the cage metaphor is something that you hmm. see? Maybe. I feel like I've, been more aware of like the four walls sort of thing of Mm. like being more not necessarily confined but more just like living within a small space versus like living within the whole world you know or the whole city or wherever I am so yeah I, I think I could relate in in slightly different terms but also I think I've had a long process of coming to terms with different things and and just thinking about living as a human differently than Mm. maybe I would have when I was younger. And again, I'm confined more by my own body than I am from like society telling me I can't do this because of this. Like Mm. there are some situations where that's the case. Um, It definitely puts my job opportunities like it definitely makes that pool a tiny little puddle your ability to survive and pay rent and things like that are absolutely affected totally but it's it's still in a very different way than where Owen had these abilities and she was prohibited from using Mm. them I think it's slightly different where I think yeah feeling caged would would be much more fitting interesting yeah yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Oh, sure. For those who have not re- listened to our prior episodes on ability, I am an, uh, a mostly able-bodied person who suffered with some mental health issues in the past, but nothing that has been really diagnosed. And so this is something that I certainly am coming to this conversation from almost entirely a, an able-bodied perspective. And, and I'm trying to keep that in mind. Yeah, I don't want to hear from you, Chris. <laughs> Give me your points and let me talk about it. <laughs> no, but actually, what character do you have that you're bringing to talk about today? 
the character or characters that I want to talk oh. about is Gollum and Smeagol. Mm, and very good character. Great characters. But I wanted to talk about them slash him. And, and frankly, I don't even know which of those would be more appropriate to use. Mm. Um, but I want to talk about this character. I, I think I'll use a singular just to make it more simple. Through the perspective of disassociative identities disorder. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Though that term certainly didn't exist, this is something that for a very long time was referred to as multiple personalities disorder. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know if that term was around when Tolkien was writing. But yeah, the, the trope of a, especially a villainous character, being one who has different personalities, different identities. Uh, I think that the one of the official ways that they're referred to in medical practice is as personality states. This is something that has been ongoing in media for, for a very long time in storytelling. You know, yeah. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is, I think, a really great example of yeah. when this has been used. But it is overwhelmingly used in a way that is perceived in a negative light. Characters who are untrustworthy and villainous and often Or maybe seem... one side of them is and another side isn't, but also people who have dissociative identity disorder. Yeah. They don't necessarily just have two, you know, they have multiple right. identities. Yeah, and, and I think that that is absolutely the case, that these, these are way too simplistic and often vilified kind of representations. And there also, I think, is not a responsible treatment of what can cause this type of disorder. And that's one thing that I think that, that Golem at least does a better job of, even if it is more implicit. Because from my readings, again, I, I have not suffered through this, but from my readings, DID, dissociative identity disorder, typically is caused by traumatic events, especially in childhood. Mm. And is a reaction to traumatic events that are just difficult to remember and to 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 process. And I think that seeing Gollum's journey as dealing with trauma is an interesting one. Because while he is certainly villainous, I think one of the fascinating things about Gollum is that he is also his arc is much more about finding out more about him and Frodo identifying with him in these really interesting ways as Frodo himself starts to understand the ramifications of being a ring bearer. And the trauma that that can bring, not only because it's a magical artifact that is trying to steal your soul and such. (laughs) uh, Oh, just that. But because it also brings war and strife to both their lives. Mm -hmm. Also, for both of them, essentially leads to or or helps to lead to their having to flee their homes and their communities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And thankfully Frodo had Sam and had the fellowship at least for half a book. But Gollum spent 500 years alone. I can't imagine that kind of the kind of trauma that that would bring with it. Yeah, I just think that he's a really interesting example of disassociative identity disorder portrayals in the media because he while he is is a, I think, better example because he, he, we see some of the trauma and we see how, how he's been affected by things. Again, not in a, you know, purposely scientific way because this is well before that kind of <laughs> representation was discussed. It also still falls into, I think, these, these problematic tropes that often yeah. occur, occur with characters who have this impairment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a really good point to bring up, you know, when I first was really exposed to Lord of the Rings, I mean... I was exposed to The Hobbit much earlier, but 
when the movies came out. Mm. And I think I watched it, maybe not when it, not when it like first came out in theaters, but I think I saw it when I was like 13 and I wasn't as aware of any of, you know, of DID, of uh, even what, yeah, people used to call multiple personality disorder. And, and so, yeah, it, it wasn't even something I thought about in terms of column when we were looking at this, this topic, just because I've just never really took a more intentional look at that, not only as an aspect of him, but a critical look at it to see how potentially problematic it is in terms of representation. Yeah, and, and I think that, that while his arc is compelling in many, many ways, mm-hmm. it does still, I think, have those problematic elements where it ends in ultimately both of his personality states agreeing to conspire against Frodo and Sam and mm-hmm. try to take the ring and, and all these other kinds of things. And though he is made... I think of all of the antagonists slash villainous slash not heroic characters in the series, he is the most compelling and the most, he has the most characterization. You know, more than Saruman, I think, For more sure. than Sauron, mm-hmm. uh, more than uruk Captain. Uh, more than Shelob. More than Shelob, yeah, <laughs> at least unless you've played Shadow of War, uh, <laughs> which is a whole other conversation that we're not going to get into. But yes, so yeah, I, I just think it's an interesting um, an interesting thing to, to think about. And again, as someone who himself is, is at best an ally in this realm, it was one thing I, I thought would be an interesting thing to bring up for our discussion of ability in, in these books. Yeah, yeah. And it almost makes it so that it also would have been interesting for him as a character. Again, not that Tolkien was thinking about things in this way, but if Smeagol wasn't on board, you know? Mm. If it wasn't just like, oh, well, then they agreed. Because I, I don't honestly know very much about DID, but from what I understand, oftentimes a person isn't always aware of the other identities, at least for a while. So that could have been really interesting. I mean, I think Gollum's story is already tragic, but mm. it could have been tragic in a different way if Smeagol was still friends with, viewed Frodo positively mm. and, like, never wanted to harm them, kept his promise, you know, all of that. But maybe Gollum didn't. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the things that I, I did find was that Treatment options typically are involving talk therapy. They're involving, you know, meeting with a therapist or a counselor and, 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 you know, doing work in an interpersonal way. Mm-hmm. And I do think that it's interesting to see that Smeagol takes precedence as the dominant personality states. And, and again, I'm not sure if that's the correct usage, and I apologize does if it's not. Smeagol? Smeagol does for a bit. Oh, for a bit, yeah. When Frodo starts to treat him in a humane way and in a way where he is talking to him, he is asking him questions and he is, you know, building a relationship with him. Yeah, I, I guess I would be fascinated if someone took a, a stab at, at kind of engaging with their relationships and this narrative in a way that is intentional about 
what it would be like for a character whose trauma manifested in dissociative identity disorder and 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 mm-hmm. how that would have been affected with Frodo and Sam's relationship and the betrayal that he did experience. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and the betrayal on both sides, right? Yeah. 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 Fascinating. Yeah. Well, what plot did you want to talk about? So, I wanted to talk about how the one ring affects the ability of different people differently. Hmm. One which actually could be kind of interesting coming off of your character uh, that I was thinking about is Gollum and how not uncommonly uh, his interaction with the ring is seen metaphorically as like addiction Mm. to certain drugs or alcohol. Most people would say that they don't think that some of these things were necessarily intended by Tolkien because a lot of the highly addictive drugs that affect people in ways that you could draw parallels between weren't around when Tolkien was writing. Obviously alcohol was. <laughs> and there were some opium. Drugs. Yeah, there was there was opium. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was that one. But yeah, that there are still some parallels between Gollum and people suffering from problems with reliance on on alcohol or drugs Mm. and so one of those would be like prioritizing getting the next hit or the the next drink potentially above or like whether it's many or above all other things in life Mm. um even when it puts the person at risk in terms of safety in terms of relationships in terms of all sorts of different things which golem definitely does and you know sacrifices all of those different aspects of of life for trying to to get the ring back he also uh his physical appearance and mental functioning is affected by Mm. the ring as well uh, which obviously substance abuse can do and also in in the end when Gollum finally gets the ring back one last time it actually kills him Mm. that also can be a reality particularly with drugs when you've been off things for a very long for a while Mm. then your tolerance is not the same and so overdosing is prevalent i also was thinking a bit about gandalf and galadriel and maybe some other characters as well that their kind of fear of the ring and like what the ring could do to them mm-hmm. makes them not even be willing to touch it because like they they already have heightened abilities compared to other people in middle earth and it's interesting that those heightened abilities in some way curtail their ability to deal with the ring mm-hmm. which is you know the most pressing matter of all of middle earth and they're super powerful people in middle earth yet they can't really do much about it or like interact closely with it or even provide that much support to frodo i mean there was the breaking of the fellowship i mean obviously gandalf was already gone but frodo was gonna go off by himself because it was gonna take over people and you know it's bad enough with boromir but if you have someone like gandalf right it is incredibly more dangerous i was also thinking about how the elves and the dwarves who were given rings of power that obviously were controlled to some degree by the one ring but it didn't affect them it only affected the men and they became controlled by the ring of power to the point of turning them into nazgul and so 
while the One Ring obviously gives invisibility, longer life, power, and these different things. It also takes something from the wearer. Even Sauron himself, he was like so connected to the ring that its separation from his body mm. made him like decorporealize and then its destruction eventually destroyed him. But the elves and dwarves, even though the ones who had rings of power, they just, they weren't affected. And so that's kind of an interesting, yeah, look that everyone's ability isn't impacted the same amount by the one ring as others. Yeah, and I'm not sure if because Galadriel has Nenya, like, that's why she has other heightened abilities mm. or, like, is able to see things in the future and, you know, uh, talk to people who aren't there and all of that. And then lastly, and this is my favorite point, Bilbo and Frodo. I was thinking about how the ring's power can be a powerful metaphor for generational trauma. Mm. And also Sam and Frodo and their interaction with their the ring and the journey and everything can also be seen as like shared trauma, mm. right? If you're not familiar with the term generational trauma, it's basically trauma that isn't just experienced by one person, but extends from one generation to the next. So I think with Frodo and Bilbo's relationship, it's really powerful because Frodo like literally inherits the ring from Bilbo and with it, he inherits trauma. And coming from a family with, I think, a fairly large dose of generational <laughs> trauma um the generational bit i think really strikes me because bobo didn't deal with the ring mm. and didn't even realize there was something wrong with it and lived all these years with it so then frodo has to deal with it mm -hmm. and he wasn't equipped for that he didn't ask for it you know it, it was given to him it was handed down and he has to figure it out mm -hmm. and he does but even in the end he couldn't heal from it and you know those scars stayed with him forever and and because of that he leaves middle earth mm -hmm. because he he can't be there there's so much that i'm sure are reminders of it there's so many instances i'm sure that he just cannot relate to the people around him yeah. because of what he's been through and i love we we had talked about using this quote at the beginning of the episode but we didn't but i'll read it now just because i love it <laughs> <laughs> and it's at the end of the movie the return of the king and frodo says how do you pick up the threads of an old life how do you go on when in your heart you begin to understand there is no going back? There are some things that time cannot mend, some hurts that go too deep that have taken hold. Yeah, I think looking at that, looking at Frodo's journey and his subsequent stance of compassion and mercy and nonviolence because of what he had been through, I think looking that at that through a lens of, of generational trauma is powerful to at least me. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really astute. And I do think that the ring itself is a 
a very compelling device in how it engages with ability for these Mm -hmm. different characters because it does have both an empowering and disempowering aspect to it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the really fascinating things about hobbits is, is that they are especially well suited to be ring bearers because they don't have that kind of martial power or magical power even Mm -hmm. that these other characters are in many ways defined by. Yeah. So there's less for them to be corrupted by in kind of the terms of, of the story. Well, and that's interesting too, because it's like, as we were talking about in our greed episode, Hobbit's main area of greed is like gluttony, Mm -hmm. right? And with Bilbo, with Frodo, with Smeagol, they just wanted to keep the ring for Mm -hmm. themselves to enjoy. (laughs) Like They didn't want to use it to gain power. They didn't want any of those things. They're just like, no, I just want to keep it. I don't want to get rid of it. Sam's temptation was building a garden. (laughs) (laughs) The most Hobbit thing. The most Hobbit thing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But speaking of Sam, that last point, Sam and Frodo having, you know, some shared traumas because like they both went through so much Mm. on their journey to Mordor. And I mean, Sam was not a ring bearer for very long, Mm -hmm. but he was at least for a bit. So there's that. But also Sam had to be there for his friend as he was seeing his friend deteriorate in some ways you know like change yeah the ring get heavier and more burdensome and just take more and more a hold of his life and you know he he watched that and and i love how at the end of the movies one of the last scenes where it's like the whole fellowship is in frodo's room Mm. you know like together laughing and smiling and everything but like it takes sam a while to actually smile at Frodo and even when he does it's like a pretty small smile I love that that was in there that it's like no Sam has been through something too and they've been through something together and like they can share a look and have some amount of understanding that the rest of the fellowship can't because they just they didn't go through what those two did yeah and and I also wonder if you know part of the reason I mean Obviously, it's it's great because I was just uh, utterly devastated when Frodo left and, like, they're separated mm. when Frodo left Middle-earth. But in, you know, one of the appendices, Sam follows Frodo to Valinor, and I think it's several decades later. But, yeah, it, that also makes me wonder, like, what sorts of trauma that Sam potentially had to experience in a recurring manner, you mm. know? And also that, you know, sometimes going through a traumatic thing together can, like, bring people closer together. I mean, obviously, that's only when, like, trauma is, like, forced on people from the outside. Not like if it's happening within the relationship. That does not make people closer. But (laughs) um, when it's, like, coming from the outside, you know, you can understand this other person from an experience that so many other people can't. And which is obviously, I think, one of the reasons that support groups and things like that can be incredibly helpful and effective for people. Because, yeah, there's certain things you don't have to explain. So. No. Yeah. So that was what I was thinking about. That's all? Just that? Just all those things. 30-minute conversation? Okay, it was not 30-minute conversation. <laughs> but it was long. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, let's move into our compelling questions then. Okay, well, what do you have for me? In what ways do you see hobbits and and the things that Tolkien writes as, as being typical or inherent in being a hobbit, how do those subvert stereotypical representations of ability? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think that is a wonderful part of the story is that people that the rest of the world don't think much of or even think of at all or even know exist and basically never interact with Mm -hmm. these people are the ones that save the world and sure they are smaller they have less exposure to all of these things they Mm -hmm. are not great fighters because they've never had to (laughs) and they like a comfortable life (laughs) (laughs) but despite those things that maybe the rest of this war-ridden world would see as detriments or hindrances in spite of that they show not only the ability to carry out the mission but so much courage for people who aren't as well equipped as as the others Mm. and so in some ways yeah I I think it can be a powerful message I think you know the quote Galadriel is of like even the smallest person can change the course of the future maybe would feel empowering for some people I think it's unfortunate that the assumption there is that the smallest person couldn't change the course Mm. of the future but also I think partially because nobody would expect anything from hobbits in some ways they were more effective at a covert mission because sauron would not expect that and wouldn't view hobbits as threats and things like that yeah i love that both those ideas of of how the fact that they are not this martial ideal means that that they are underestimated by their enemies and their allies at times as well. Mm-hmm. But it also because that does lead to more danger for them on their missions, I think that it does take a greater or at least a different kind of courage to participate. Mm-hmm. Because though they are going to do whatever they can, the threats that face them, they do not have necessarily the same kind of ability to defend themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really, really important in seeing how the hobbits that we see, though though a hobbit's natural inclination might be to stay at home and be comfortable, Mm -hmm. that they're also, these heroic hobbits are in their pursuit of doing what's right, showing a greater courage and bravery than a lot of other characters would in their same situations. Absolutely. They also have the ability to walk around without shoes. That's true. That's true. Uh, So when rains come, they're not walking around in soggy boots. Yeah, that's actually one of the things that I was thinking about when I was thinking about this question. We've talked a bit about in other episodes how Tolkien basically laid the foundation for all of high fantasy since. Mm -hmm. And I think the best modern example of that is Dungeons & Dragons, which gives mechanical benefits to what race you choose. Mm. And the mechanical benefits that hobbits have is they tend to have greater constitution 
which mm-hmm. essentially means that, yeah, they, they can walk around barefoot and <laughs> they can drink a lot and they can do all these other kinds of things. They can apparently walk through <laughs> Mordor where the very air you breathe is a poisonous fume and survive. <laughs> but the other really interesting trait that they have is that they're lucky. And hmm. that uh, if you are, when you're rolling a d20, if you roll a one, you can re-roll that roll if oh, you're a halfling. Cool. Um, which is, can, can be game changer. How rude. They're just being like, these hobbits would have died out there, so they must be lucky. But that's, that's totally, I think, a really interesting element of it is that there's, I think in Lord of the Rings in particular, which has kind of come to halflings as they've been known in Dungeons and Dragons and other kinds of things, because they are so small and they lack those martial abilities for the most part, that this idea of luck kind of being a narrative, uh, being so important to a narrative that their luck kind of propels them forward, I think is really, really interesting. Um, even though, yeah, I think that uh, Tolkien would, would probably have some some issues with it being considered <laughs> luck because um, he had his, his whole idea of a beneficial version of like calamity. I forget exactly the word that he used, uh, but hmm. yeah. Prolamity? No, calamity isn't actually the, the word that's that he used it's it's uh whatever sorry tolkien scholar yeah sorry anyone who actually cares about these things <laughs> <laughs> on that note should we go to mine yeah what, what's your question for me <laughs> so my question for you is what messages about ability stand out to you from lord of the rings or the hobbit that's honestly something I've been struggling with as I've been thinking about this conversation because I mm. see in so many ways contradictory messages mm-hmm. coming from the the, the books and, and these the stories because in some ways the abilities of characters is determined by birth and race. These things that just are not really transferable to our society in the same way when you think about racial aspects at least yeah um, it's true that talk about race yeah for sure. it's true that some people are born with anything from different heights to propensity for mental illnesses to to all, all sorts of other kinds of things but that these are kind of divided up in these racial categories i think is is very different in that these are the short people these are the other short people these are the long-lived beautiful people these are the regular people these are the, the <laughs> evil people right <laughs> the regular <laughs> These are the ones that should only be underground. <laughs> These are the tree people. <laughs> yeah. And and so often characters are so defined that way. And in ways that we've talked about in the past, this is also because there's so often so few characters of each that we see. We only really see one end. Right? We don't learn much about Quickbeam. So, yeah, I see I see one of the messages coming out is that racial categories are deterministic. And yet, we also see the challenges in some of the things we've discussed so far, where Eowyn is born a woman, but she is able to do great things using abilities that are typically considered male abilities. And Mm -hmm. that she bucks the idea that because she's a woman, she shouldn't be able to do X, Y, or Z, but she's the only character who does so. She bucks it? She bucks it. (laughs) (laughs) And to add in a whole nother intersection there she's also a noble woman and Mm -hmm. so she has more ability because of her class to get away with bucking these expectations (laughs) 
I could spend five <laughs> hours a day sword training. Exactly. And so... And not even have anywhere to use it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so, so there's a lot of kind of ambiguity there. But I think that if your intention is to zoom out beyond these kind of racialized categories that I do think are, are really integral to the world building of Middle-earth, but you just look at characters and their choices. Mm-hmm. We see characters whose narrative arcs are often defined by subverting the expectations placed upon them by their birth. Aragorn is not just the ancestor of Isildur, but he is the one who's able to... <laughs> the ancestor? Or, the descendant <laughs> of Isildur. He's real old. <laughs> <laughs> He's able to circumvent all of the problems that Isildur had. And Legolas and Gimli become friends, even though elves and, and dwarves hate each other, right? All, all these kinds of things happen, I think, throughout. And so, yeah, I, 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 I can't say that there is a single message that comes from Lord of the Rings because I think that the two of them contradict each other but are both so powerful that I can't say one outweighs the other in mm-hmm. the way I look at the, the series. Mm-hmm. I was thinking a message I take away <laughs> from Denethor is that addressing mental health issues is very important. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> It is, though. Like, yeah, absolutely. It super is. And I, keep... I am in therapy right now. <laughs> <laughs> he very much exemplifies that, I yeah, think. Yeah. Not only how it affects him, I mean, and in the end, him killing himself, but also him abusing his children, mm-hmm. or at, very, at the very least, Faramir, and him mismanaging the entire kingdom. Mm-hmm. I also think that maybe a message is that i'm kind of like splicing together harry potter a bit in this show like splicing a harry potter quote with a gandalf quote so it's like the dumbledore's quote about it's our choices far Mm. more than our abilities that show who we are and then gandalf like all you have to decide is what to do with the time that's given to you yeah and I do think that's a strong message that does coincide with ability because the elves have more abilities to fight this war Mm. than probably any of the other races. They have the most to lose, eternity, but they have better eyesight. They are more agile and uh, light-footed, you know, Legolas can run across the snow and it, like, barely leaves any footprints or whatnot. They have superior weaponry. They have... They are apparently superior in every way, actually. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of my uncles, he joked, he's like, yeah, I bet when it rains, like, it just beads off their hair. Like, they don't <laughs> even get wet. <laughs> but they have these cloaks that help camouflage mm. them they have lumbus bread you know they have all of these different things they can outdrink gimli <laughs> apparently yes and so it's like they have the ability them and basically the wizards right mm-hmm. they should be the ones fighting this war but the elves choose not to and people like frodo and sam do their part against all odds and Pippin and Mary do, you know, a combat part that wasn't even asked of them. <laughs> so I just, yeah, I don't know. I kind of wonder if, like, one of the messages 
is it's what you choose to do that matters so much more than the abilities that you naturally have mm. because it's what people chose to do that made the difference for all of middle earth yeah and i also kind of wonder if another message would be like that maybe love and and bravery are more important than ability mm. because you have sam kills Shelob, who is like the descendant of an angel mm. right and like has these other special abilities and is also just a ginormous spider and he destroys her <laughs> because he is brave and he is trying to defend frodo and it's out of love and commitment that he can do it and also you have eowyn who is defending and protecting her uncle and kills the Witch King. The Witch King had way more abilities than she did, but that didn't matter in the end. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Oh, how nice. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose we should move into our missed opportunities. That's what, a good idea. What is your missed opportunity? So for me, when I was thinking about this idea of the, the, the social model of disability, it got me to thinking about how in a fantasy world there are often so much of of the impressive aspect of reading or watching especially watching these worlds is in the design of what they have created the the amazing cities and architectural wonders and 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 you know how much effort is put into making these really impressive and, and spectacular sites and it just made me think is anyone asking the questions of how these might affect people who have disabilities? Like, how do people with physical impairments live in a place like Minas Tirith that is this yeah. giant cliffside, ridiculous idea of a city? If they can't easily get up on a horse, they can't just run up it like Gandalf. Exactly. What about if you are allergic to horses and you're born in Rohan? <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. <laughs> uh, if if you have a uh, if you're a hobbit and you have a sensitivity to pipeweed smoke, what are you gonna <laughs> oh, do? Oh no. <laughs> you what know? if you're gluten intolerant? You just can't even participate in the yeah. culture. No lumbus bro- bread for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, but more importantly for them, no ale. <laughs> also true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I I, I just uh, it started making me ask all these these questions about. Any, any kind of society who who is not being served by the way the society is designed both structurally and culturally and systemically in all these other kinds of ways and in a fantasy world i think that the best fantasies or the best science fiction and and things like that that are that are helping us to ask questions about our own society are ones in which you can see these kinds of questions being asked as well yeah absolutely no yeah that's important i never thought about the horse allergies <laughs> and it's, it's valid it's, i looked it up on google to make sure it existed <laughs> no my sister would not do well in Rohan. Yeah. she's allergic to like a lot of animals mm-hmm. there you go no thank you <laughs> well what's your missed opportunity the ability to not live in rohan <laughs> no that's that's not the place i would choose <laughs> i would go with perfection i eat rivendell <laughs> um my missed opportunity is about orcs there's a few different 
potential origin stories, I think, for Mm -hmm. them. But one of them is that they were elves and they were tortured so brutally that they basically became these other creatures. And it's an interesting idea to bring in that torture can change people, Mm. like, because it definitely can and can make you interact with the world differently, can make you interact with other people differently and is you know it's it's not something you're ever going to get over it's never something you're going to heal from you'll likely have post-traumatic stress disorder and Mm -hmm. and all sorts of recurring trauma from it but the problem though with the narrative with orcs if we're we're taking that as the origin story to be the true one is that they're the evil ones Mm. It's not, oh, whatever the creatures were that tortured them to begin with, that's the people who are the villains, you know. But they are turned into something that seems so much more, like, bestial than it does, Mm -hmm. like a person. And even though the book does have more nuance than the movies do, 100% with them, like, talking about, like, oh, what are we even doing? Like, why are we doing this? You know, like, they're a little more humanized than the movies. But, yeah, there just, there isn't enough nuance with them for that to be their origin story, for it not to be incredibly problematic. Yeah. Because, yeah, torture is horrific and completely unacceptable. And can change people forever, but that does not dehumanize those people. That does not mean that they are going to now just be evil or something. So, yeah, that's my missed opportunity. Yeah, that's so true. Not to mention that even that is kind of discussed as like a legendary occurrence that happened thousands of years prior. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that these orcs that they're fighting were tortured to the extent that they were turned evil, which is Mm -hmm. problematic in and of itself, but it's that their great, great ancestors did. And that that torture was so intense that it, it, again, it it made this, this biological determinism that all of their bloodline would be broken and made evil and inhuman through this action. And that's, that's terrible. Yeah. Further victimizing a victim. Mm-hmm. Generational trauma is a thing, but it doesn't yeah. have that big of an impact. <laughs> <laughs> now you are another species. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, what is your takeaway from our conversation? I think my takeaway is kind of bringing together our discussions of the message of the, the, the stories and, and especially our discussions of Hobbits and the Ring. Because the moment that I can't get out of my head is when Sam takes Frodo and carries him up Mount Doom. Mm. When he becomes the ring bearer bearer. (laughs) Yes. And I think that it's really powerful when looking through the lens of trauma because this is not Sam, you know, this is Sam saying, I can't carry it for you. Where even though he did it when he thought Frodo was dead and, you know, metaphors are never perfect, he understands that he cannot save Frodo. He cannot fix Frodo. Mm -hmm. He cannot give him something that is just going to magically make him no longer have this traumatic weight. But what he can do is support him. Mm -hmm. He can help him in ways that can get him up to hopefully where he needs to go. But even when he gets there, Frodo makes the decision to toss in or not toss in the ring. 
Sam helped. And it's one of the reasons I love Sam and will always love Sam, but I just think it's a really powerful moment as well when you think about the ring as this this kind of traumatic force in their mm-hmm. lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, totally. Yeah, I think mine is that when I first read The Return of the King and I was like, no, Frodo, like, couldn't do it. You know, mm. in the end, like, he didn't throw the ring in. I was just like, no, he should have been able to. And then, like, now, almost, wow, a, a while later. Not not quite <laughs> not quite two decades later, but quite a bit of time later. You know, going back to, to the beginning of this conversation, is I've had my own abilities more li- become more limited over time. Now I love that. Like, I love Mm. that he couldn't do it on his own because, first of all, that shouldn't be the point. That we can be self-sufficient and we can, like, overcome anything. Like, we can't do that. We're we're people, you know? And maybe some people can, but not everyone can. And that doesn't mean that they're any less valuable, that they're any less important, that they're any less beautiful as people, you know? Yeah. And... So, yeah, I, I I love in the end that he didn't have the ability to to do it on his own and that somebody else who did came alongside him mm. and was there for him and was going to help him, but then somebody else... Attacked did, him instead. Who, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> somebody else who had, you know, didn't have the ability either, you know, un- unfortunately. Yeah. Um, it did claim their life, but... Yeah, I think that's an important message of the story as well. You don't do these things alone, and it's okay if you can't do them alone. We don't have to be superheroes. We don't have to have the ability to do what either society expects us to do or what we expect ourselves to do, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think it also, it gives more narrative weight to the ring and to its power Mm -hmm. because if they just got up there and maybe someone like made a grand speech and then they threw the ring in (laughs) ugh what even is that story (laughs) you know it 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 loses the the drama and and the struggle Mm -hmm. that Frodo and and to a smaller extent Sam and Gollum have been going through Mm -hmm. it makes it much less powerful and so, yeah, I think that it is a, a really beautiful way of, of tying that up. Yeah. Speaking of tying things up, we should, <laughs> we should, we should end our episode <laughs> and move into uh, what we'll be talking about next week. So next week we are returning to The Hunger Games and The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. We're going to be looking at the series through the theme of compassion. Oh, great. Compassion of the Hunger Games. Something the capital doesn't have. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. You can find links to our social media and our website in the episode description. You can also join our Patreon by going to patreon.com slash lines. That helps keep this show sustainable and also gets you access to all sorts of fun content and goodies that we provide for our patrons. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek, geek out! out.